Please uh, be standing in body or in spirit as we come before God's word will likely do as Jesus and the disciples uh, would have done, which is to recite the Shema, which, of course, became the basis for what Jesus called the great commandment. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This morning we're in Paul's letter to the Ephesians in chapter 4. We're going to pick parts of the first 16 verses. We'll go 1 through 7 and then 11 and through 13, where Paul says, As a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Be completely gentle and humble. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of Christ. For there is one Spirit and one body, and just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith. One baptism, one father of us all who is over all things and through all things and in all things. And to each of us has been given grace as apportioned by Christ. And then we skip forward to verse 11. For he gave apostles and prophets and uh, evangelists. And teachers and pastors for the work of equipping the people for the doing of the service of good works and for the building up of the body of Christ until all come to unity in the faith, in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the full measure of the glory of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. Well, that's a mouthful. Um, As I mentioned last service, uh, Pastor Dinah picked out the scriptures uh, for uh, the past six weeks. And I don't know why she always wanted to use the letters of Paul or James. Those were like the hardest things to memorize. (laughs) But let's see what we can do. You may have seen the news this uh, past week. And it showed our president at uh, the Western Wall. Now, you may be aware that the Western Wall is all that is left of the great temple of Jerusalem. The first temple of Jerusalem, built by Solomon, of course, was destroyed by the Babylonians. Then the second temple was, re- was rebuilt and then expanded by uh, Herod the Great into amazing grandeur. But in a revolt against the Romans, the Jerusalem suffered greatly. And in 70 AD, the Romans came down and destroyed the temple, so only that wall is left. Interestingly, it took Roman soldiers 18 months working 24 hours a day, seven days a week to tear that temple down. It was that impressive. It was that massive. But nonetheless, it was torn down. And so all that is left is that wall where uh, people pray 
even to this day. Now, you probably know what happened, which is the Jews revolted against the Rome, against Rome about 40 years after uh, the death of Jesus, and the Romans got tired of it, and they put down the rebellion, and they put it down in a most severe way. And that's sort of a historical retelling, but I think it's also important to think about what the Jews think and what they said about the fall of the temple. And they told a most interesting story, and this is uh, the Jewish version as found um, in the Talmud. And the, uh, the, it goes like this. There was a wealthy man in Jerusalem who threw a party. And he sent messenger to go and get his very good friend Kamsa to come to the party. Well, the messenger messed up and he went and got a guy named Bar Kamsa. I mean, close. Except Bar Kamsa was an enemy of the man that threw the party. So when his enemy came walking through the door, he said, hey, what are you doing here? Get out, get out. And the enemy, Bar Kamsa, said, look, I'll pay for whatever I eat and, and whatever I drink. And he said, no, get out. And then Bar Kamsa raised the stakes and he said, look, I'll pay for half of the cost of your party. No, get out. And then Bar Kamsa said, look, I'll pay for the whole party. Let me stay. And the host, with a rabbi sitting nearby watching the whole thing, completed the humiliation of Bar Kamsa. And they told him, even if you paid for the whole thing, you cannot stay and get out. So in humiliation, Bar Kamsa was tossed out of the party. Well, as the story goes, he decides he's very upset about the way that the rabbis didn't intervene to help him in his humiliation. So he goes to the Roman officials and he said, look, I was just at a party and a bunch of rabbis were there. And you need to know they are planning another revolt against you in Rome. And, uh, of course, the Romans are a little suspicious. Well, how do you know that? And, they, and he said, look, I was there and I can prove it. And uh, what, what you should do is send an offering to put, be put on the altar of the temple and just see if they accept it or not. And if they don't accept it, then you know they mean war. The Roman officials said, well, that, that sounds like a plan. And so they decided to send over a beautiful, pure heifer to be sacrificed uh, by the Jews in their temple. But on the way over there, as the story goes, Bar Kamsa is able to um, enter intersect uh, the, the heifer coming over and he's able to put a blemish on the heifer on its way. And so when it gets there, the rabbis have a problem. You can't offer this impure animal, but on the other hand, if we don't, then the Romans are going to think we mean war and it's going to be tough. So they had a choice. Do we push for purity or do we push for peace with the Romans? And as you might guess, they pushed for purity and the Romans saw this as rejection and a sign of rebellion. And with their full might, with the emperor Vespasian, no, the future emperor Vespasian, they came down upon the Jews and sacked and burned the town and destroyed the temple. Now, interestingly, the Jews do, drew two lessons from what happened. And this is the first one they said. This temple was destroyed, they said, by baseless hatred. In other words, um, uh, Kamsa's, um, Bar Kamsa rather, was hated by the host of the party, really uh, beyond reason. And then Bar Kamsa sowed into the Romans uh, a, a causeless hate of the Jews by sowing a story that wasn't true. So they said the first temple fell because of baseless hatred. And then they said this, and the next temple, the third temple, which of course is not here in their mind, will be rebuilt by causeless love. It was hate and 
unreasonable hate that brought it down. It is love that will rebuild it. And then they drew this further lesson, which they took from earlier discussions they had. Whenever peace and truth come into conflict for the people of God, you must choose peace over truth. And they they chose truth and purity, and it led to their destruction. Well, why on earth do I talk about that? Because, quite frankly, that happened ten years after Paul wrote this letter. But I say this because Paul worries about the unity and, and the well-being of the new temple. Because Paul, because he learned from Jesus, knew that the real temple was not the one that was standing there and would stand there for ten more years. The real temple was the people of God. And I think Paul would have agreed uh, with the interpretation ten years later that there's nothing that can take down the people of God faster than baseless hatred faster than pushing for purity over peace, for pushing for being right over being and maintaining the relationship. Paul would have seen that unity was the critical thing for the people of God. And in fact, uh, many scholars believe that if you were to sum up Paul's theology across the letters, the important thing for Paul is not uh, some sort of doctrine of salvation by grace, though that's important. But the important thing is what that led to, which was a unity for all of God's people in Jesus Christ. And I want to talk with you a little bit about unity this morning. Now, one of the things you'll probably protest right away, and correctly so, is that, wait a minute, we're Protestants. We got here by disunity. We got here by rebellion about 500 years ago. And if you want to be real honest about it, Methodists used to be part of the Episcopal Church. And and then we split with them. And you would be correct. You would also perhaps think, well, now, wait a minute. Jesus pushed for truth. Remember, he said the truth would set you free. And he also, of course, got in that debate with Pilate about truth. Truth is important. And you would be correct. But I believe that the preponderance of evidence in the New Testament is simply this. That unity of God's people trumps everything else. Jesus' very last prayer. Remember this, John 17. What did he pray? He prayed, our Father, I pray that they will be one. Paul, uh, in Ephesians, makes the theme of this letter unity. And as I mentioned, we can argue that most of his letters uh, can revolve and be seen revolving around that theme. In the New Testament, you'll find 59 times this, this phrase. You probably will figure it out once I say it. One another. Think of all the one another's in the Bible. Love one another. Be kind to one another. Serve one another. uh, Live in peace with one another. All the one another's that are there. The unity of God's people is a huge theme in the Bible. And the Jews, I think, rightly argue that it was the disruption of of, of this unity that brought the first temple, uh, the second temple, rather, down. So here's what I want to do for just a minute. I want to give you a few thoughts on why I think unity is so important in the New Testament. The first one is this, which is in Paul's letter this morning, which is unity is a gift of the Holy Spirit. It's not something you and I go do. So I'm not saying, you know, go out of of this sermon today and, and go try to be unified with other people. Unity is a gift of the Holy Spirit. It's something God does. And so Paul says, make every effort to maintain the Spirit. Of unity. In other words, God's already done it for you through the Holy Spirit. You just need to try to hang on to it. And so Paul says there are seven things that give you unity. One spirit, 
one body, one hope, one Lord Jesus, one baptism, one faith, and one God and Father of us all. We have more that unites us than than, uh, the things that divide us. And I would go so far as to say that when denominations like Methodism and other church groups begin to fight with each other, the onus on them is to explain to the Holy Spirit why they thought their particular fight was more important than the unity that the Holy Spirit has given us. I'm not saying there's nothing worth arguing about. I'm just saying you've got some explaining to do. When the time comes, prove it. Show the Spirit that your particular issue, your particular complaint about another person is more important than the unity that Christ has got us. maybe, Maybe you can prove it. That's the first thing. Unity is a gift to the Holy Spirit. Second thing is not necessarily in this letter of Paul, but you'll find it in other letters and you'll find it in Jesus' writings. Jesus said, love one another because by this people will know you're my disciples. And of course, what? Uh, Forty years ago, we turned it into a song that we all learned around the campfire. They'll know we are Christians by our love. That was Jesus' call for that sort of unity which should triumph over other particular issues in the church. And, then, and so the second reason is this. I think, I think Jesus knew, and Paul later would reflect on this, our disunity is a bad witness. Our, when we fight one another, the people outside who are thinking about Christianity but haven't committed yet, they're the collateral damage of our fight. We fight and they, and they back up. They're like, do I really want to be a part of that? Do I really want to join that? What kind of message does that send when we as Christians fight one another? And as I mentioned last week, debate is fine. Debate is appropriate. Debate is like arguments, the way of Judaism, and, and, and I assume they thought it would be the way of Christianity. Uh, but the fighting and the way that we treat one another, that's not a particularly good witness Uh, Tertullian, one of the early uh, church leaders, said this, talking about the growth of the church, that what outsiders say about the church is, look how they love one another. Up the road in Waco, Texas, there's a professor named Rodney Stark at Baylor University who's pretty well established that the reason the church caught hold in Rome was not just the power of the Holy Spirit, though certainly so, but it was the way that people were impressed by the love that the early church showed in all situations for people, and especially for their people. So no, it was like no Christian was left behind, whether they got the plague or uh, whether they were imprisoned or, where, uh, or whether they were uh, facing martyrdom. The Christians rallied around one another. And so it was a powerful witness. And I believe uh, that's another thing. Our unity is a better testimony witness to other people. But here's the main thing Paul says today. Basically, Paul says, if we don't have unity then we're not very mature. And then if we don't have unity, we won't be very mature. It's both the measure of our faith and the method by which our faith gets deeper. A lot of you have heard this analogy that being a Christian is like climbing a mountain. You can climb a lot further and a lot higher if you're part of a group together than you can alone. Uh, There's something about uh, the the, uh, unity of people together that allows us to do things we could never do on our own. And I I think that this unity is key 
as Paul says, to our um, maturity. Uh, Chris Estes, um, who does a lot of teaching around here um, and works on matters of uh, recovery from addiction, uh, told me this the other day, that in Alcoholics Anonymous, one of the things they said is that the first thing is uh, the common welfare of the AA group is, is, is more important than our individual how we're doing individually. And then they go on to say the corollary is that our personal recovery will depend upon our unity as a group. We can simply do things together. We can't do when we're pulling apart with one another. And, and he went on, did a little experiment, which I thought was real interesting. He, um, he texted a number of us who teach uh, here or at Asbury or um, at Riverside and asked for, I think, um, what was it, Robert? One to three of our favorite theologians we read. Robert Ortiz over here follows the rule. He sent three. I sent seven. But when you look at the list that, that Chris put together of the theologians that are read among some of the teachers um, uh, on the campuses, you found male and female. You found people from uh, the United States, from Great Britain, from Croatia, from Central America. Uh, you found also a variety of denominations. You found that it took a number of people from different angles for us to grow and for us to become uh, what God has us to become. Variety is a key to growth. And this is the way Paul put it, that, uh, that Christ apportioned gifts uh, through grace. In other words, gave us, as Danielle pointed out to the kids, to the children, different jobs do. Some of us are an elbow, some of us are a finger, some of us are a mouth, or some of us are a brain. But we all have different parts, and they're all needed, this variety, for us to grow together. And actually, our growth as Christian depends on having people around us who don't necessarily always hold the same opinion and theological belief that we hold. I know you've heard a lot recently about how college campuses and, and uh, other places can be echo chambers where you only hear your own voice and people who agree with you. The church, it is not so. It's not supposed to be that way. We need each other and the variety of, of viewpoints that we bring so that we can become what God has called us to be. Now, it doesn't mean we agree with everything, but it means that we at least listen and pray through uh, uh, the variety of viewpoints and experiences that come together in God's body. Remember what John Wesley said. I thought he made it up. I'm so disappointed to find out he he borrowed it from an earlier theologian. But John Wesley used to say, in essentials, we should have unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. And charity is what the Jews believed would build the next temple. Uh, In fact, uh, many Jews today say that every generation that goes by and the temple is not rebuilt is an indictment of that generation that they haven't learned how to love one another enough. For the temple to be built again. I don't know. That seems to be kind of Jewish mother guilt. Stereotypically. But it does make us wonder. What have we not achieved of the body of Christ? In our town? In our nation? In our world? Simply because we haven't loved each other enough? What might we achieve? If we took the time to listen a little bit more deeply to one another and to love one another more deeply as well. Could we, as the body of Christ, be rebuilt in a new and even more powerful way? The last temple, 
is torn down by hate. This temple, the body of Christ, is always built by love.